Tell me about the place where you lived in the country before. How did you find the place and where and, and, and how did you make it your home? Oh, boy, it was so amazing, Tall. It was um, we had been looking for a couple of years, really craving being closer to the land somehow. And um, and the place that we found had such a series of strange coincidences around it that it really felt as if we were blessed to have found it. It was a property of 30 acres that already had these beautiful earthen buildings that were both 80% complete, Mm. um, that were pieces of incredible visionary architecture that when we first saw them, it took our breath away, quite frankly. And it also had already existing extensive gardens. It had over a hundred fruit trees as we eventually found when we counted them all. Uh, There was irrigation already laid throughout about a 10 acre area of it. And that 10 acres was very, very solidly deer fenced. There were, are, I should stop using the past Mm -hmm. tense because the property still exists. There are two beautiful ponds. Um, The upper one stays full most of the summer and is planted with lilies, water lilies that bloom in the summer and spring. And it's surrounded by oak woodland. Um, That ecosystem has changed a bit now. There also was an existing shop, um, which was mostly full of junk, but it consisted of two 40-foot shipping containers with a roof on top of them. And um, and there was uh, there were existing 2,000 gallons of propane and 5,000 gallons of diesel fuel nice. on the property. So I'll quickly say that the way we came to buy it was that uh, I said all these things Things were there existing already and were 80% complete. The fellow who built these amazing buildings out of the local clay that he dug up from the land itself and wood beams that were milled from on site from trees that had grown on site. He was building all of those. He was probably working 15 hours a day for years. Well, financing his life by growing weed and uh, was riding his mountain bike. He was 43 years old. He was riding his mountain bike on the gravel road and fell over dead of a heart attack. And that is how we came to be living on his property. So, yeah, we got it in a, it was a probate sale and um, part of how it felt so synchronistic or uh, fortuitous, like so, unbelievably lucky was that um, Hap Touch here had built a tiny house that was like the cutest little fairy wagon that we used to take to Burning Man and serve chai out of. And we had parked it on our friend's land. It was kind of like a weekend getaway kind of up here near our land. 
And it was like this jumping off point. We'd stay there and look at different parcels and we're kind of, you know, looking for the, the perfect one and had this idea we kind of know. And we both felt that knowing unbelievably when we saw this land. It also turned out that our, our uh, tiny house, we called it sometimes the wagon or the chai wagon, was parked literally across the street from the parcel we came to own. So it was on our friend's land. They had 30 acres. They still have 30 acres. Theirs burned too. Um, and the fire that took ours, but so ours was parked there and we started talking to their realtor who had sold them the land 25 years before he was partially retired, but we were like, Hey, just put us on your radar. You know, if anything in the area becomes available, let us know and we'll, we can come up. And so he called us and was like, you're not going to believe where this parcel is. You've got to see this. It's not on the market yet. And so that was what felt really lucky. It's weird now to tell the story and remember the feeling of feeling lucky and be like, I mean, then maybe we can define what luck is, <laughs> that it wasn't good luck or bad luck. It was an abundance of just plain luck, <laughs> that it was good luck that we found it. <laughs> and maybe now a kind of, and also a kind of equal bad luck that we found. Chance, some might say. Yes, exactly, complete. <laughs> another randomness. Mm -hmm. So tell me about moving into it and building there and what you saw when you walked around the first time thinking that way and what it turned into and how. Uh, I mean, I think we saw the immense sort of promise of it and, and also that it was what we had been looking for. You had even had this vision, Pap, that like we would have... You were like, what if, and we thought we were going to buy raw land, by the way. We had dreamed of building an earthen house and having our little wagon and a shop. And I um, both love this about you. And it's also sometimes scary that you were like, okay, when we build stuff, what if we have like a yurt over here and a shop over here and the wagon over here and some other outbuildings? What if it's the rooms of a house, but all connected by footpaths. So you have to walk outside to get to all the different places. Mm -hmm. And I was imagining myself in the rain. I was imagining us having kids, imagining snow, smoky weather, hot weather. And I was like, oh God, my crazy husband, this is be a beautiful vision. And I, do I want it? I both want the poetry of it. And I also sometimes want a big comfortable house. And and, and it's kind of funny what we found ended up being what I described, like his vision in that there were two cob structures. One was, they called the barn. We actually dealt with the, the guy's brother a lot. So we got a lot more internal information, like very personal detailed information about the parcel we were buying and the sort of family that had lived there than we, than you never normally get, especially in a probate sale. And so so we learned that this big structure was called the barn and it ended up being kind of our living room and our offices. And we had plans. Eventually we envisioned it being this big common house if we had, you know, a sort of community living there. But so that was our like living room and offices. It had, it still had a dusty ass dirt floor, but we had like a projector and a screen and our like kind of nice couch in it, but right there on like a wood, I mean, a wood, a, a dirt floor, um, and then we had our like bedroom and kitchen and another little cottage that was there that was the one building that was the most complete that had power and water 
already when we moved there. So this big structure I was talking about, HAP eventually got it kind of hooked up to water and power by reverse engineering some of what had been laid down and then kind of adding some new stuff and honestly making some of it a little safer than it had been hacked together mm. as before. And then we did have a shop and we did have the wagon. And what this always happens when you buy land in Northern California, there are lots of trimmer shacks, meaning like moldering trailers where people who would come, trim immigrants would come trim your weed with you. So we got more trailers than we wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so we did have this and one of them became, you know, they became different things for different. Like we used to keep chickens in one when we were sheltering little babies, little chicks and baby ducks. Another one kind of became your other office. So we ended up having this funny network of like buildings where like some mornings to get up, it was during the pandemic, we were mostly there. So to get up and like teach yoga online, I would would get up in the little cottage and like make my coffee or tea and then walk, you know, 0.2 miles to this bigger house where I taught yoga and like stoke up a fire and get my camera ready. And so, so we, and then if I was going to do laundry, I would walk another 0.2 miles to where, to our little shop where our washer and dryer were. And like, so we kind of ended up fulfilling that vision and I really liked it. It turned out, I really kind of liked it was inconvenient sometimes, but I liked getting suited up for the weather, whatever it was. And I loved walking built into my day. It's a little bit weird now living in a small town, which we love. I love walking around town, but it's weird to have to make myself be like, I should go take a walk now. Not because I have to, to go do a thing, but because I will feel better. It's weird to build it into my day. Mm. Hap, can you, is there anything you can say about those systems that Booty was referring to? Like you reverse engineered something about like the, the plumbing or whatever it was. Is, can you tell me what you found in there and how you changed it? Oh boy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so the, it was a very idyllic situation and um, the, the fellow who had been working on it had clearly some funny ideas um he but i mean part of his he he was something of a prepper and had gone down some kind of a conspiracy rabbit hole i don't really know what conspiracy he believed in but he was prepping for some kind of apocalypse and he also uh had funny ideas about reusing used materials and hacking things together on your own versus purchasing things off the shelf, uh, which meant effectively that, for instance, the solar panel setup that he did didn't have any circuit breakers installed, (laughs) which meant that in order to make changes to the electricity, one had to cover the solar panels with a blanket in order otherwise there was constantly you know 300 to 600 volts running through the wires and you couldn't disconnect anything without potentially causing an arc quick question on that (laughs) was there any kind of status light or anything that indicated whether there was current going through or did you just sort of have to wait 20 minutes or something you you, i mean you had to come with a tester and sort of Uh okay yeah there there was a moment where the Dead Man's brother and Hap were uh, 
HEP was going to build, built us basically a new sort of inverter system to make all of this much safer. Mind you, all of this is in fire country where I was like, there are corners you cut. I believe in MacGyvering things and reusing things, but not like this. Uh -huh. And so there's a moment where they were covering the solar panels and we're together going to separate some of the solar system to disconnect it. And, you know, there was the arc threat. And I was, I kind of looked at the brother and was like, if you, because of what you and your brother did, if you kill my husband, I will never forgive you. <laughs> it turned out okay. No, but he literally, in order to disconnect that piece of equipment, he said, okay, I'm going to grab it and pull, and you get behind me and grab my hips, and you pull me at the same time so we can get it off fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, things like that. There were also, it's too deep in the weeds probably to go into, but it's clear that his sense of physical reality was a little bit uh, non-consensus in the <laughs> sense that he, he didn't totally understand how water pressure works. And so he did funny things thinking that he was going to be increasing the water pressure at his plants, which actually had the effect of decreasing it. So mm. there was a lot of, you know, we spent our years there. I spent all my time there reverse engineering the systems that were there trying to figure out what had been done and then uh, replace and upgrade. So it's a, that's a funny thing about buying land because it's such a, it's the zeitgeist now people want to buy land, put structures on it, like infrastructure systems. On the one hand, it was super lucky when, when I reflect back and was like, how hard would it have been to be just in a yurt on where we had to drill a well and lay our own irrigation and run our own power from solar that would have been much harder at first to not at least have mostly functioning buildings we could move into. And at the same time, he took most of the brunt of the reverse engineering, not me. That was also really, sometimes he would be, I mean, ironically, I'm kind of fasting forward. You had just finally discovered the water shut off for the cottage so you could put in a hose bib so we could have a hose and eventually a sprinkler system on our cottage the day the fire started. And that had taken years for you to fi finally find where the shutoff was. So there were good things and bad things about infrastructure because the, the fact is anyone who's not building to code, even if people are building to code, uh, it's as idiosyncratic as the structures of our own, own minds, how we, and how we build, lay, engineer things in physical space. And so there were definitely some funny-ass things that were uh, riddles we had not even solved um, in trying to decode what he had built that worked for him. There was a reason. Mm -hmm. There were probably Band-Aids and tech debt for reasons, and we would have had our own. But it was, uh, it was funky sometimes. It's so beautiful how unique yours was, but... I love that you're saying that all shelters are works in progress forever. And I deeply relate to that. <laughs> the question that I want to ask you now is maybe kind of hard, but you were working, you were, you were working on the work in progress right up until one day when the project changed 
irrevocably. And I want to hear about the letting go of the work in progress because it's a project. It means everything. And it's really hard to give up on a project. And I'm sure it took a long time to let it go and to start a new project. So can you tell me about how this process went from that perspective of the work in progress? I I will say that um, shortly after the fire, which took that whole project away along with all of our belongings, um, a couple of months after, I was at Burning Man, thanks to a friend, and uh, and I was pondering. I was kind of trying to come to some kind of resolution. It was too soon to come to any kind of resolution, but I was trying to force it. And there was a moment when I thought, fuck, I'm free <laughs> of having to figure this guy's shit out. <laughs> and I thought, and I thought about how the buildings were so beautiful. And yet there were things about the way they were constructed that meant that I couldn't ever really trust that they were going to last. There had been, we had had an incredible rainstorm one winter, uh, when a whole lot of rain dumped at once. And actually the big house, the place we called the big house had sprung a leak in the roof. And we came home to discover that there was water all over the floor. The water had poured down inside of our house. And I thought, wow, at least now I can make my own mistakes instead of having to live constantly in fear of what somebody else's mistakes. Now that is probably an illusion since we are all embroiled in the mistakes of everyone else. <laughs> but um, that was a feeling that I had. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one, I have a little more to say about my own identity shift around the ending of our project, but like a funny detail of that time when the, the roof leaked and so it was an earthen building. There was gorgeous plastering that, that the brothers had done or that the, this guy had done which is where you put like sand and clay sort of over the walls. And he had put mica in it and earthen pigments. It was so pretty. And that was all destroyed from the leak. It, you know, just like mud washed off and was suddenly on the floor. And when you were investigating the roof to try to figure out what had caused that, there was it was a green roof. So there were layers of like hay and straw underneath pond liner to construct it and there was like a bucket among in this like three foot thick roof you found this like random bucket where you were like what so there were definitely even before that there were often little indicators that the way all of our lives and maybe the whole all of civilization is hung together by snot that's actually a thing that uh, an anatomist i like does that about um our how the snot of our connective tissue hangs us together. But I think about that with everything. In our bodies, it's actually wildly functional and amazing and miraculous. In civilization, it's maybe it's more precarious or it's differently precarious. Maybe they're both actually really 
on the edge and precarious. But yeah, there were a lot of little discoveries like that that were somewhat terrifying. Um, but so for me, it, it I was certainly engaged in the day-to-day and was ready to roll with when the power suddenly would go out. And that was actually kind of fun, little sort of mini disasters that would happen because depends on where you live. But if you live in California, the power gets cut off anyway in fire season. At least we were in control of it. I liked that feeling. But for me, it was a really big identity shift from being so rooted on the land to where we were both out of necessity and out of, you know, just sort of the joy of a human, being a human in nature embedded in a way where we saw the grass grow by, you know, a millimeter when, oh my gosh, like the little grasses are starting. Oh, wow. It's the time of year when the geese fly overhead. It's a time of year where these flowers that only grow on this part of the land sprout and these little flowers that only grow here sprout. And the time of the year when the blue oaks turn orange, we were so deeply embedded. I loved, 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 loved in a deeply spiritual way getting to follow those cycles. Like this is the part that's going to make me emotional. It's been such an identity shift to, I feel much more integrated now, I think, or I'm not as worried about it, but the few months after, maybe up to six months after I was like, wow, who even am I if I'm not able to attend to those cycles? Like that's my religion. And it's gone. It's not gone. I was a city dweller before I was a country dweller and now I'm a town dweller. There's cycles everywhere to attend to. Like there's certainly, it shouldn't be a privilege to get to live in the country and live off the land. And it very much is. So as a city dweller too, in New York, I couldn't attend as much to some of the natural cycles, but there are still beautiful like symphonies of human cycles where every year I'd be like, Oh, it's the time when this thing happens. It's the, what the critical tits bike ride every, you know, it's, Oh, it's the time when everyone's naked on the subway. It's the time when I'm not thinking of examples now, but where all these like beautiful human concerts of activity coalesce. So those are available everywhere, but it was still such a rupture in the flow of my spiritual identity to lose connection to this land because I, we'd kind of gone all in. I was really like, wow, I'm going to, in a good way, I'm going to die on this land. And I want to know it intimately. And we had some logs actually on one of the trailers. The guy who passed away, we got the land from, had written like dates on when he saw a snake or when he saw the ducks come back to the pond or the geese. And um, we were continuing that in our own log. And so both in, our, in an embodied way of noticing and sometimes forgetting to record, and then in a way of recording our observations and looking at his and noticing the subtle, like the cycles that overlapped and how they shift and how they are iterative, like similar yet different always.